On the Empire Podcast this week, we get into some fisticuffs with Michael B. Jordan for Creed 3. Big mistake. We have a ghost with Christopher Landon and we sing Babylon with Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz. Plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that recently learned that traditional TIE fighters aren't pressurised and I haven't even seen Mando yet. <laughs> Hello pod, I'm Helen O'Hara and the good news is I'm back. The bad news is that our beloved leader Chris Hewitt is off today with Little Drinking Game but fear not, I'm still joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is James Dyer, a man who, credit where it's you has seen more films than me this week. That is true. That is true. I am basking in a righteous glow this week. Yes, you I'm see just... how it feels? Imagine feeling like that <laughs> all the time. Imagine being like this every week. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty special. We're going to get back to the TIE fighter pressurisation thing in a second. But, okay, uh... yes, we will, yes. Um, also with us is Amon Warman, who also, more credit, where more credit is also due, has also seen films that I have not seen this week. Hello. This is true. This is true. But in the case of James, I feel like we should mark the day and time of this Incredible occasion. Has this ever ever? Have have I did heard the fucking coming at me. I'll fucking take you. Uh, I mean, it's fair. It is fair. It's fair. But in my defense, I watch approximately three hundred and fifty thousand hours of television every week. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, I have. I have seen. I've seen two whole films. Two whole films. And I managed. Well, I was going to watch the second one, then bad internet prevented it. So yeah. here we are. Um, but yes. So Tie Fighters. Tie Fighters. So mm. basically, last week I went and and emceed the Escape Studios VFX Fest. Festival, which is one of my favourite things to do every year yeah. um, because I get to hang out for three days with VFX people and they are genuinely to a man and woman and in between delightful people they are I have never met and, and you know I'm sure somebody's screaming have you never at, met them the because they're virtual no I mean I've never met a bad one <laughs> um, and uh, and maybe there I'm, there must be some out there like by the law of averages but like the, all the ones I've met have been have been lovely and I, I just I heard a lot of you know insider gossip I heard a lot of interesting factoids mm-hmm. I heard about some major blockbusters with totally unfinished effects that were released in the recent <laughs> past um which I shall not name to preserve the <laughs> guilty. Um, but I also learned that apparently traditional TIE fighters are not pressurised, and that's why they, wear, why they wear those masks. This is not true of all models of TIE fighters, so that weird double one in... Um, the, what, like the TIE bomber? Uh, I think it's actually a tie border oh, if, which that we saw one? in uh, Andor. Oh, okay, yes, with that a, one. With a yes. sort of double circle in the middle. I have never played right. that one in the various TIE Fighter simulation games. No. Well, you must yeah. be just... I'm more of a TIE advanced now. man, sometimes a TIE defender man, depending on my mood. <laughs> okay, we may have strayed beyond <laughs> my knowledge. The point is that the nice man from ILM who was talking about the scene that involved some TIE Fighters in Andor... Mm said that they basically had to, you know, calibrate the explosions to to allow for whether or not there was air inside. That's cool. Yeah, right? So, traditional TIE fighters, not pressurised, so there's no sort of puff mm. to go up in... in That's flight. really interesting. Right? Like, genuinely really interesting on a really nerdy level. Yeah. Did you know that TIE fighters, unlike X-Wings, have neither shields nor a hyperdrive? So that's why you wouldn't see one that deep out in space? Uh, that's right, it's a short-range fighter. Darth Vader obviously had a kind of modified TIE yes, Advance and that yeah. had a hyperdrive. Kind of and special. clearly, we, you know, we see <laughs> Kylo Ren with his helmet off in, a, yes. in his fighter, so clearly his is pressurised. Yes. I'm just saying, you know, the traditional sort of basic model apparently not pressurised. Wow. This okay. is the kind of stuff you learn. This man. is good. I'm, I'm really excited with that piece of information. I'm not entirely sure why, but I am. <laughs> I can only imagine the sort of stuff that you do find out of these things because I consider those guys 
and girls to be wizards. They are, yeah, they absolutely <laughs> um, are. Yeah. And they were talking about, you know, I, I got to hear talks about Black Panther, were kind of forever, and some of the work, work they did there. Um, yeah, we definitely have a conversation about. Yeah, that. we will. We will. <laughs> it just, you know, the, the the level of detail and the level of effort and you know sweating blood that these people put mm. in is is really astonishing. I rewatched Black Panther: Wakanda Forever on the weekend. And what did you think? And I liked it a lot more upon yes. second viewing. Uh, and I think the reason for this is, is that, you know, like when you're enjoying a film a lot and then it has a disappointing final act and then it colours your view of the entire film and mm. it makes you just feel really down on it. Mm. We may be talking about such a film later today. Actually, Indeed, yeah. we may. <laughs> uh, but that's where I kind of was with that, I think. I, because I found the, you know, the 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 the, the sort of fight with the Telecanians, Telecani. Tele- Namor's dudes. Namor's people. Um, Telokans. Them, or, or, yes. Or Telokans. Isn't that what uh, Ryu and Ken do in Street Fighter? Telokans. Oh, boy. No? no. <laughs> anyway, it's Hadouken. Ah, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, so so when when they have to fight on that great big ridiculous block of metal in the sea, which buzzes yeah. for a ship thing, like, that <laughs> sequence for me just doesn't work. Like, it doesn't work on, on, a, on a narrative point of view. It doesn't make sense that you've got, you know, Riri and her armor. You've got two you know, of the, what are they called? Midnight Angels, whatever they are, yep. who were kicking asses and then just stop fighting and go into a fallback action. But also, the, the fact that all of those characters who can fly <laughs> Don't are just fly. there standing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's, I'm still... And, but, and, and I think that annoyed me so much when I saw it that it coloured my view of the whole film and I kind of, I felt like really like down on it after that. But this time, up until that point, I realised I was having such a good time with the film that when it came, because I knew it was coming, it didn't, you know, I wasn't so crestfallen by it. I still recognised, I thought it was disappointing. But I said, you know, I'm not going to let that ruin my enjoyment of the film. So I did, I did, I liked it more. Mm. I liked it more. And I will say the VFX in that one were very good. Yeah, I, I had like, I think... Watching breakdowns this time. The yeah. undersea stuff looks a bit disappointing because it comes out just before Avatar. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, that's a bad thing. And I think, again, that last sequence, when obviously Shuri's in full Black Panther... Sorry, spoilers for Black Panther Wakanda <laughs> forever here. I really apologise for this. When Shuri's in her armour, you know, and then there are other people in full face armour, I think there's a little bit of that CGI marionette stuff going on, mm. you know, during the action, which I didn't like from the end of the first Black Panther. I don't like that it's just two CG stick figures chucking each other across a train track. Like, that's... My issue with that, but yeah. other than that, you're right. Like the 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 SFX yeah. is is decent. VFX. Mm. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, there were specials. I mean, both. Me. There's both, <laughs> of course. But yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we should probably like get on with the podcast. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> I forget we're here to do a podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming right. you're both well. La la la. Anyway, um, wow. we have three guests to get through today, guys. Come oh, on. Wow. Um, so uh, let's have a reader question first. Uh, this one came in from Kane McDonald at Kane Mac15 on Twitter, who asks, "What's your favourite film with very few people in it?" Mm. The business of strangers. Tell me more. Julia Stiles. Oh, you love Julia I, Stiles. I mm-hmm. may love Julia Stiles. She's my cousin, you know. She's O'Hara. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Is this actually true? Her name is Julia something O'Hara Stiles. Yes. Wow. She's not literally my cousin, but, you know, she probably... Uh, she's not a literal cousin, but she, she's, literal she's just cousin. Like, a, like an honorary cousin. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, The Business yeah. Strangers, which came out in 2001, and it's basically a kind of gender-swapped remake of Company of Men, but right. it's Julia Stiles and Stockard Channing mm-hmm. hanging out. Like, she's a waitress, Stargo Channing is like a high-flying woman, and they end up sort of like getting carried away on this kind of slightly revenge thing against this accused rapist. But it's really just these two people bonding and 
sharing their kind of inner lives. It's really short. It's under, it's like, I think it's like 80-something minutes. It's a really short mm. film. I don't Instant think it's... immediate star? Yeah, and I don't... It's not available on Blu-ray. I know that because I tried to find it and it, I couldn't get it anywhere. I don't think it's available in HD at all. You might be able to pick up a uh, DVD somewhere. But it's two stellar performances. Obviously, Stockard Channing's amazing, but both of them are great. And the way they play off each other and they the ups and downs of their relationship as it evolves. I, uh, I really enjoyed that. All that, right. that was the first thing that sprang to mind. That's off the fair. cuff, yeah. unprepared. That's fair. Mon. You've gone blank. Your mind's gone blank. My mind has gone blank oh. right now. I mean, in recent memory, there's not that many people in Marcel the Shell with shoes on. That's um, true. That is and true. I really yeah. did enjoy that film, one of the best films of the year so far. Um, but yeah, I shall keep thinking. Okay. Well, Reservoir Dogs is a great example, isn't it? Of a, it's a limited cast. Limited least, cast. Yeah. I suppose yeah. it's probably more than I feel is like ideal, that's more than our, yeah. you know, than we're more than a handful. I mean, Buried, of course, yes. is, is a good one. That is, is literally Ryan Reynolds mm. and a snake. Spoiler. Yeah. But, you know, that's it. Um, so Buried is, I mean, it's hard to go much lower than that. Cast away for most of its running time. Yeah. There's a couple of other yeah. people at the beginning and the end. Spoiler. But generally, mm-hmm. it's just. Tom Hanks carrying the whole film yeah. with a volleyball. I mean, I feel yeah. that Wilson is a vital part of the film. Wilson so. is pretty important, like you know. Marcel himself. Yeah. You know? yeah, I mean, well, this is topical in a way because they are doing a sequel. But at least until the final reel, I Am Legend is a really great film. Mm. <laughs> um, they're also using the right ending for the sequel. Which is canon now. You know yeah. this? Like the, 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 yeah. um, the director's cut, whatever you want to call it, the alternative ending is now the canonical ending for I Am yeah. Legend. Okay, yeah. so remind me what the... I mean, I feel, we're, gonna, we're about to spoil I Am Legend. We are about to spoil it's, it's I Am Legend. It's 15 years old. If you so, don't so, want you know. to be legend, don't listen to this. So <laughs> as, as it ends, as I recall, so there's the explosion in the lab, isn't there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Where he... He dies, does he, in the in the canon, in the yes. theatrical one? Yes. But, he has nothing left to live for once the yeah, dog is dead. But but is not but dies kind of a quote unquote hero. And the alternate version, you realise that he's the villain of the story mm. all along. And he's been basically stealing these quote unquote vampires and experimenting on them. They are sentient beings. And one of them comes to save his partner, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you realise at the end that the, the real massive downer of the whole thing is is that he's been the villain all yeah, along. Yeah, and that humanity is going to be the legend. He's going to be Indeed. the sort of monster under the yeah. bed for this new vampire race that kind of takes over the world, the world, which is the ending of the book and the whole point of the book and something <laughs> that basically every every adaptation has really shied away from apart yeah. from, I guess, in the director's cut. So, hey, I'm not sure what the vampires eat with all the humans gone, but... You, know, you make a good point. You know, mm. Tofu. Tofu. <laughs> Nando's. <laughs> Not Nando's. They can do better. Oh, can, uh, they? can um, anyone? This is what I'm saying. Yes, everyone can do better. <laughs> Demand better for yourselves, people. I went to the old Crawford's Burn Inn uh, last night in Northern Ireland. I was I was home. I was the old for what? A the Crawford's Burn. Crawford's Burn. Inn, is which it famous? is where C.S. Lewis went on honeymoon. So I'm feeling very like oh. in touch with like fantasy and stuff right oh, now. It's very okay, cool. Okay. So you know. <laughs> It's all good. I was also, I was also, I went on pilgrimage around the North Coast where my f- family live and saw, I'm not going to name any names, but I went looking for some locations in some upcoming films that, you know, may be in some upcoming films. And I found them and that was fun for me. So I, I can now go and see that upcoming film and say, hey, look. Hey, look. I was on I know kind that, of set. I know that beach or I know that hill. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking. I can't wait to learn what this upcoming film is. It's very mysterious. <laughs> you'd, you'd never guess what uh, what major upcoming film was shot in Northern Ireland if you didn't, you know, look mm-hmm. for 10 seconds. <laughs> Anywho. 10 seconds later. <laughs> we have a plethora of piñatas and also guests to get through this week. So, so, shall we start? Right. It is time for guest. It is time for a guest. And it is not, in fact, 
the song by David Gray. It is, in fact, Babylon by Damien Chazelle. And we spoke to not only Damien Chazelle, but we spoke to composer Justin Hurwitz as well. Uh, in fact, our very own Ian Freer went down for a big old chat about Babylon uh, and, you know, what it feels like to fight a fucking snake. Can I just take this moment to say once more with feeling that Voodoo Mama is the bomb. Incredible track. The best track of any UK release film this year so far. Uh, Justin Hurwitz might, may win the Oscar in a couple of weeks' time and it would be very deserving. Voodoo Mama is, interestingly, my gamer tag. So, so <laughs> it's nice coming to Good to know. Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, we're here to talk about the music of Babylon. Uh, I've had the soundtrack on repeat. And I now have finale stuck in my head. Thanks very much for that. That's that's very good of you. Uh, I just wondered if when you're, Damien, when you're in post-production, do you get the tunes stuck in your head all, all the time? Yeah, well, I've had the tunes stuck in my head since, uh, you know, even before pre-production. That's kind of just, oh. m- m- most of those melodies Justin wrote, uh, you know, before uh, before we'd crewed up, before we'd even cast most of the film, you know, just early, early days when I first handed him a draft of the script. Um, so, so I've, uh, yeah, I, I sympathize with your, uh, with your, uh, <laughs> you know, but, 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 but I definitely one up you because for me, it's been years of uh, not being able to get them out of my, my brain. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you're writing the screenplay, you're not writing to a playlist, you're writing to Justin's music. Well, uh, sometimes when I'm revising the screenplay, I mean, we do start with the script first. So normally Justin hasn't composed stuff until there's at least some draft of the script. That draft will definitely go through a lot, you know, a lot of changes. But um, so usually what I'll give Justin, I think it was the case with this movie. You know, I gave him the script and then probably a handful of like kind of like a little mini playlist that was not not music that even directly pertained to the movie necessarily but maybe just spoke to tone or sort of basic comps for kind of how the music might be able to work it was probably a hodgepodge of stuff some from the period some not at all from the period and just you know um i don't know how much of it actually wound up i forget what i gave him so i don't know how much of it actually wound up even being that useful but i try to give him some you know basic indications uh, other than just the script and then he goes off and you know, works as magic. And Justin, do you remember that playlist? What do you remember anything on it? How was that for you? Yeah, vaguely. I remember there was some like rock and roll on it. There was some like jazz, but late, definitely later than twenties, like more, I don't know, maybe sixties stuff with kind of real more muscular horn sections, a lot of like Latin grooves um, from later in the 20th century um it was it was there was just tons and tons of stuff in that playlist that like damien said was definitely not period 20s period music but gave us just little bits of the feel you know that we wanted to try to capture just little ingredients um that we would sort of later put in a blender and come out with the babylon sound yeah i i read that you were kind of you're interested in rock riffs in acdc and the kinks and the stones that sounds amazing to me there was some of that in the playlist for sure. Yeah. And there, and there was, you know, um, there was some contemporary dance music um, again, just to kind of give us the feel we were going for. Um, even if it wasn't, uh, you know, a literal model or a literal uh, uh, reference for the song. And and so how does the process work from there? Do you, Justin, do you go away and, and, and compose? How does it work? 
Yeah, I just start playing around um, with uh, really the basic building blocks. So usually I start at the piano and I'll just noodle around until I have an idea. I'll make a quick little piano demo, send it to Damien. He says no. And this we repeat over and over and over again until <laughs> we have ideas that he says, oh, that's really catchy. That's so, I mean, you started off by saying that you find the music, it sticks in your head. And that's thanks to this process I go through with Damien at the very beginning where we just try melody tune after tune after tune and he sort of helps me weed through them until one sticks in his head and if one sticks in his head we we hope that it'll stick in other people's heads as well from there once we have the the basic tunes then i move over to software and i start playing with virtual instruments virtual saxophones virtual drums and i just start building arrangements layer by layer by layer in the computer until we have demos and then from there we go into the studio and we bring in lots and lots of players and it's that's a whole that's a whole other process then we experiment layer 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 in the studio with real musicians so it's it's really step by step starting at the piano ending up in the studio with musicians yeah and then did you make a decision about period instrumentation did everything have to be from period because i believe there's some synthesizers on the score right is that what was your thinking yeah it's and not it's not strictly period. It's almost period. The bands at the parties are basically period. They might be a little bit bigger than the jazz bands you'd have then, but they're basically period, like two trumpets, two trombones, uh, three saxes, rhythm section. We snuck in like in a really, we, we, um, in a really invisible way, we snuck in little things like, uh, like an 808, which is sort of a synth kick drum just to that pound you know that pounding sort of beat that that yeah. sort of we we use synths to just amp up little elements of the grooves but for the most part it's all acoustic and it's all period um in fact we were often using period instruments to almost um emulate things that you have in electronic music like in electronic music you often have risers you have these these synths that just go you know building anticipation <laughs> as we as we move towards a new section or we move towards a a drop of some kind of the bass drop the 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 beat dropping in and we 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 did the same thing but we used saxophones and trumpets so we have rising 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 in the horn section which gives us that that feel that in more contemporary music and EDM uh you might have uh you would definitely have uh on since doing it um, there are a few other parts of the score where we snuck in things that are definitely not from the 20s. Um, there's there are a couple of cues with uh, an electric guitar melody just because we thought it was kind of fun. And um, there are a couple of cues where we used a Mellotron, which is a kind of a more associated with the 60s. The Beatles used it. The Beach Boys used it. It's a it's a keyboard that when you when you press the keys, it plays a loop of tape. And we found that when we played the the flute mellotron um it it sounded like a circus instrument it sounded like a calliope which by the way we recorded a real calliope as, as well at uh there's this composer nathan barr in town who has a, a studio with a real calliope so we recorded the calliope but for a couple of other cues we thought the flute mellotron gave us that circus sound even better so we found that there's this place in la called the vintage synth museum and they have an actual tape mellotron <laughs> so we went there and recorded 
uh, the Mellotron in order to get this like circus quality into into a couple of the cues. So there are a few there are a few instruments that are totally anachronistic, but for the most part, we stick to uh, things that you would have had in the twenties. And Damien, was that circus element important to you? Was that kind of wild kind of party kind of, kind of feel? Was that important that that circus thing? Yeah, we, yeah, we talked a lot about the movie being being a circus movie on some fundamental level I, th- yeah. I think to kind of understand hollywood and sort of the 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 roots of hollywood the origins of hollywood you, you kind of do need to understand the circus i think you know there's 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 something very um you know sort of uh basic and primal and kind of all-american huckster about sort of the origins of hollywood you know it really is you know sort of people from the wrong side of the tracks uh you know your sort of prototypical you know misfits and deviants uh going out to the desert pitching a tent and uh and creating this world of make-believe and and uh and and at, at you know at the beginning also very much sort of catering to lowest common denominator the sort of base <laughs> these sort of primal kind of things that people wanted to see you know uh pies in the yeah. face animals doing tricks uh you know <laughs> a little bit of you know sexuality uh some stunts you know you just think of kind of really the 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 roots of populist american cinema of hollywood really um it's it's all in there so uh um and, and i think coupled with the idea of sort of polite society frowning its nose at it too you know i i, I yeah. think a lot of the early movie makers wanted to think of themselves as artists in my opinion they were but much of the society around them probably didn't look at them as anything more than the circus or maybe somewhere you know underneath you know uh, uh, buster keaton famously uh wanted to move from vaudeville into the movies and his father a famous vaudevillian disowned him for doing so. <laughs> so so movies were really at the bottom of the barrel you know at the time um and so in terms of the time you know in terms of the setting of our movie you know begins 1926 definitely you know we're a few years or you know decade or so uh removed from you know the very beginnings of kind of what you'd call hollywood so mm. you know you could argue that the circus roots have been sort of subsumed a little bit but i think they were still very much there i mean you could argue they're still there today but i, I think you really yeah. still felt them in just the sort of ramshackle dusty la that existed at the time in the way movies were made, especially at the sort of cheaper studios um, and uh, just the number of movies they would churn out and the way they would approach them. So, yeah, we wanted uh, and certainly the way they partied then, of course, has its own circus like atmosphere. So, yeah, it, it felt very much in keeping with sort of the overall kind of idea of the movie to try to, you know, uh, everything from the gross out gags in the movie to to the yeah. to the circus music it was all to me part of one one sort of you know overarching thesis but i guess at the, the other end of that there's some classical influences as well aren't there i mean you use mazorsky in the film and there's some other influences as well but, yeah i mean that was kind of the it, it was the two of them at once uh sort of was 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 sort of um the thing it's 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 people on the ground there who wanted to be part of the great european artistic tradition and they wanted to build their norman castle yeah. in versailles and uh and think of themselves as you know artists or patrons of the art and uh you know in, in league with the great european painters and composers and dramatists um so so that's the thing you have this kind of yeah you you you, you know you have an art that a lot of people consider a low art you have people wanting to make it a high art you have this sort of uh debate about what is high art versus low art and somewhere in the middle of all that in that fighting in that sort of uh 
you know, that kind of turf war, that's where the movies really uh, exist, I think, and where they come yeah. out. And in addition to Mazorsky, there are a couple of cues that are definitely inspired by classical music. There's this big kiss on the hill that's very Wagnerian, very inspired by Wagner. There's a there's a cue at the Hearst party that's very uh, uh, Ravel's Bolero inspired. And as Damien was talking about high society turning up, turning their nose up at uh, at these Hollywood characters, I was thinking about that cue because that cue goes back and forth, back and forth between scoring the sort of polite, elegant side of that party, and then dipping into um, kind of these um, off off kilter, off kilter sort of harmonies and scales that remind me more of the circus. So it's constantly going back and forth in its flute melodies and clarinet melodies between between, you know, almost classical and then a little circusy. And it builds and builds and builds as the sort of um, temperature rises at this party. It's like a seven minute something cue. And it's a great, great sequence. And everybody at this party is getting a little things are just getting a little crazier and crazier and people are uh, getting more and more uncomfortable and things are starting to go off the rails at this party. And the queue builds and builds and builds and explodes into just total mayhem at the end, which is um, uh, there are definitely circus sounds in that, that, that explosion at the end as well with these sort of like, you know, these uh, trilling and fluttering flutes and these screaming uh, brass instruments. It's um Anyway, that cue, it just it, it reminded me of when Damien was speaking about sort of constantly going back and forth between the polite and the impolite. Yeah, cool. And final couple of things. Uh, your your collaboration, is it fair to say your first collaboration that you were both in a band together? Yeah. 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 When we were that? 18, the first week of the first the first week of the first year of college, we started we met and we started a band. Well, we met because we were starting a band, basically. Uh, we met in order to start a band with a few of our classmates. And this is a cliche uh, Rock Jonas question. Uh, what was your band name and what were your influences? Chester French was the name, although it went through a few. Where, where, did, that, where did that come from? A statue. There was a statue at Harvard. Daniel Ch- Sir Daniel Chester French. So yeah, was who, who I think he did the yeah he did one of those statues on the on the on yeah the, yeah yeah. But uh, what were the influence? Zombies, Beatles, yeah, Beach Boys. I, I remember it being the zombies? Yeah, because you had you had a a road. Didn't you have a? I had a Fender Rhodes. Fender Rhodes uh, keyboard. Yeah. So key- it, it was guitar, bass, Fender Rhodes keyboard, and vocals and drums and yeah, yeah. sort of it was it was like a retro '60s Brit pop turtles zombies uh yeah and then you, you on drums yeah damien was a great drummer in fact the, the 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 way that i sort of ended up uh the reason we met was because i was i was just asking people i wanted to start a band so i was asking people do you play an instrument or do you know any musicians and and i got this tip there's this drummer in my dorm somebody told me who is uh like he what he had won these like national like drumming awards in high school he was like a top top uh, drummer in high school which of course is then where whiplash comes from i think years later all of damien's experience drumming in those competitive bands and stuff but um anyway i had heard that he was like a top top drummer so called him up and we ended up uh starting this band with our classmates cool and is it right is it fair to say that some of the um 
the members of that band are part of the 80s covers band in La La Land. Well, we're really going deep here. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that was Justin's idea, too, I think. Wasn't that your stroke? <laughs> yeah. Here? The stroke of casting genius. <laughs> the redhead at the at, at the front of the band who's uh, yeah. just kind of obnoxious. Um, D.A. Wallach, we, we love him. He's one of our closest friends in L.A., but he plays that when he wants to, when he flips the switch and wants to play the obnoxious character, he's perfect for it. And just like <laughs> throwing his head around and kind of like, you know, taunting Ryan's character, Sebastian, um, in the band, he was just perfect. Put them together. Yeah. yeah. It was just, Is it yeah. bad? Go is make Ryan as uncomfortable as possible. That was the <laughs> uh, direction. <laughs> and is it bad to say that I like Iran? No, I think that's, I mean, I don't know. I'm just jumping in there. I, lo- I love Iran. You know, it's like I only put music in these things that I actually want to hear. The song they're playing before also, Take On Me. I mean, that's a classic. So, yeah. uh, uh, no, to, to, to me, I'm much more, you know, on the side of uh, people who like those songs than... Uh, I think Ryan is just so charismatic that he sort of makes audiences maybe believe that uh, everything Sebastian, his character says is uh, correct or, or, or has some sort of weight behind it. Whereas I, <laughs> I sort of wrote the character more as a, a little bit as a fool. I mean, he's like, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a parody of a, of a, of a jazz nerd, which obviously I, I, I share some traits with, but they aren't the traits that I, you know, that I'm proudest of. <laughs> we recorded a demo of Lady in Red too. I remember. I think. Oh, wow. uh, oh we I did. I don't know if you cut the whole that whole part of the scene, or if we just replaced it with one of the other songs. But we had a great cheesy, cheesy demo of Da singing Lady in Red. Oh, that's great. That's I, great. I really, I really love Da's version of Take on Me, and I'm very annoyed that you can't get it on Spotify. Have you noticed that, Justin? It's the only it's, thing on the album that's not there. It's not on the um, the complete musical experience because there's a much longer ver- uh, album called. No, the it's on the album, but you can't play it on Spotify. Like it's. Oh, uh, that's some you know rights thing, catalog rights thing, probably. Very annoying. I, I, may, maybe as the music person, you could fix that, Justin. Thanks. I'll. I will look into it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that's lovely stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice talking to you. It's great talking to you. Okay, let's get into this week's movie news. I feel like we should start with the SAG Awards, uh, which are this, is the Screen Actors Guild. It's not like the award for the most saggy person. I was about to say, why don't they call them the saggies? I mean, honestly, <laughs> it, would, it would be the least appropriate award for most people in Hollywood that it's possible to imagine. Like, no one there has ever sagged, as far as I can see. <laughs> so they're all taught as a drum. Um, so, uh, yeah, this makes sense. But anyway, the Screen Actors Guild um, was uh, last weekend. It uh, it's an interesting one because it doesn't get the attention of the Golden Globes, which are a big pile of shit. But the Screen Actors <laughs> Guild is actually quite a good indicator, relatively speaking, of who might go on to win the Oscars. Um, so if I personally were head of a US TV network, I would be trying to air the SAGs rather than the Golden Globes mm. because they get a really starry turnout. They have all these people. They, they cover TV and film like the Globes do, but they don't have all of the baggage that comes with the Golden Stupid Globes. That is you true. Know? Anyway, so who won the prizes, you're asking? Well, <laughs> the Ensemble Prize, which is the sort of equivalent of Best Picture for the SAGs, mm. is Everything Everywhere All at Once, yeah. uh, which also took uh, Best Female Actor, uh, in a leading role, Michelle Yeoh. It also took Best Male Supporting Actor, Ki-Hui Kwan, and it also took Female Actor in a Supporting Role for Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. 
beating out her own co-star Stephanie Sue. So that is a pretty good, good night. Encouraging, um, right? Yeah. Very encouraging. Also, just to mention, because I love him, Brendan Fraser took uh, Best Actor for The Whale. Uh, again, not a great movie, but a great it performance. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, Key Kwan's yeah. speech, incidentally, was magnificent. Oh God, he's just the most delightful human. Mm. As was James Hong's as well. Oh, I didn't uh, listen to that one. It's really, really good. He was talks it? about yellow face and the history of that in Hollywood. It's mm. really, really yeah. good. But yeah, for for all the nonsense that we've had with the awards over the last few months, I'm not going to relitigate everything that happened with the women king of the Oscars. It's been well documented, but it's very cool to see people like Michelle Yeoh, people like Angela Bassett, who have been doing the thing for years getting their flowers um, because they're incredible. Wait, so. Angela Bassett did the thing? <laughs> she did do the thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, she, if she was the Oscars, I really hope she does that again and she says it on stage in her speech. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I'm really, really happy about that. And Everything I've Ever Wanted Once was my favourite film of last year. So, I'm very here for it, winning all the awards. Mm. I'm, I'm, you know, I, look, as you know, my heart is divided between that and Banshees, which I also adore. Mm. Um, but I am absolutely okay with everything everywhere, mm. having literally all of the momentum, I think, behind it as it goes mm -hmm. into the got Oscars the big mo. in a couple of weeks. I think the, the Writers Guild is next weekend. So we've mm. still got that to come. So that'll give us a better indication of maybe the screenplay awards for the Oscars. But otherwise, you know, mm. it, things are pretty much... Um, looking like they're in the bag for everything everywhere. Can I just also say, I love that the SAGs have an award for Outstanding Action Performance by a Stunt Ensemble. Yes. Um, that should Which be went a thing. to Top Gun Maverick. Maverick. Uh, and rightly so. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But that should be a thing at more award ceremonies uh, because stunts are such a big part, especially of action filmmaking. That should be deservedly rewarded for, for their work. So. The Chris McQuarrie Award for Outstanding Achievement in Stunts. Yes. <laughs> yes. Honestly, for the next three years, if Mission Impossible <laughs> releases where, when it should, it should just go to basically McQuarrie and Tom Cruise team-ups because you know he's about to the Tom Cruise is going to do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> he does do the thing. He does do the <laughs> Just a different thing, but yeah. it's, it's still a thing. Um, yeah, there were TV winners as well. Some surprises, I thought, there. Uh, Jessica Chastain winning for George and Tammy. I didn't like George and Tammy. I, I have I, to be honest. She's very good in it. She's to be very fair, good. But I didn't. Yeah. I didn't enjoy it massively. But over things like Amanda Seyfried in the dropout, yeah. you know, um, that was that was a bit of a surprise. Sam Elliott took best mustache. Sorry, outstanding <laughs> performance by male actor uh, for 1883. He's very very good in that. He is. Uh, yeah. Jason Bateman won for Ozark. Jennifer Coolidge for The White Lotus, hugely deserved. What's uh, that you said? Everyone got snubbed for Better Call Saul again. Everyone got. I mean. Did they shoot on an ancient burial ground? I mean, like, what? Honestly, it's Was just... there a witch who cursed them? Like, I don't understand what happened. I will say, if you can't get enough Better Call Saul, we recorded a Better Call Saul, another Better Call Saul spoiler special, <laughs> which you can listen to over on the Spoiler Specials channel. And uh, this came up when we did that. Like, the lack of recognition for what is one of the greatest shows of all time mm. is extraordinary to me. Absolutely extraordinary. It's very strange, yeah. isn't it? I feel like it's going to age really well, though. Like, the same thing happened with The Wire, lest we forget. And now we talk about The Wire, rightfully, it's one of the greatest yeah, shows. Yeah, and no time, one so. really watched The Wire at the time. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. I do know what you mean. But it's just, it is it is maddening. Yeah. I'm here for all the love for Abbott Elementary, yes. uh, for which I've been a, a relatively late convert to, but I'm absolutely in love Interesting. with that show. Interesting. So it's I watched yeah. 
So we're reviewing it on this week's Pilot TV podcast. Awesome. And I watched the pilot and the first one of episode two as well to try and get into the Abbott space. Okay. And it kind of, it, it blows my mind a little bit like the, the kid from Everybody Hates Chris is now <laughs> a heartthrob. I'm like, yeah. what the fuck happened and how did I get this old? Everybody loves Chris. They really do. <laughs> In a kind of slightly thigh-rubbing, thirsty way. Uh, but yeah, it's good. It is. It's a good it's, show. Yeah, it's, a, and, it's really good. And, and the thing mm. is, like, it does deal with serious issues about the mass of underfunding of public mm-hmm. schools, which is something we share in this country with the Americans, yeah. but also is of delightful, charming, upbeat comedy. You know, it's a it's yeah. a it's a brilliant balancing act. Very funny. All credit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't should... I don't hold with Stranger Things winning over the likes of Andor. In fact, literally everything else in that category. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I get it. No, did did Andor win anything on the night? Oh no. What? Yeah, it's but the... it's. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's the SAGs. They're not going to yeah. give it to a sci-fi. They won't give it to a Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. But it was the best show of last year. Yeah, it was. You know, but again, this is actors voting for acting. And as they always make clear, no acting happens in any genre except drama. Yeah. Do so you true. not know this by now? Most acting happens in biopics. About 43% of all <laughs> acting happens in biopics. And then the rest of it is spread across general drama. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. I just, I want to sit these people down in a nice comfy chair and just play for 10 minutes straight that back-to-back scene of Andy Serkis's speech and then the speech that follows after that yeah. and tell me, Everyone in the audience at the site should have just been going, one way out, one way out, all the way through the ceremony. I don't like that. Uh, yeah. Love yeah. that show. Oh, that'd be so good. <laughs> it would be one of the many ways that these award ceremonies are basically like uh, a live Empire podcast, where yeah. we, of course, did exactly that. That so. is, in fact, true. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other news this week? Well, there's some news, I think, possibly geared specifically for you, Helen. Ooh. That the dreams you had of one day witnessing the majesty of Rogers the Musical will be realised because Rogers the Musical is being staged in full this summer at Disneyland. I can do this all day. <laughs> Wonderful. Amazing. Wonderful. Yeah. Delightful. It's not coming to Euro Disney. You will not be able oh, to see it over what? here. You will have to go to... Uh, I think is it, is it, I think it's LA specifically. I think it's LA, That's fine. Yeah. Uh, should, should, should we book tickets now? We should book tickets now. Yeah, to see Rogers the Musical. Yeah. Like I'm... Thanos, it was inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's going to be on the Hyperion stage at the California Adventure Park um, in Anaheim. It's described as a limited time engagement and a one-act show, which, I, I, I'm sorry, no, it must be there forever. <laughs> yeah. It must become standardised and it must be shown in Europe. It, well, frankly, if it's imagine. not at the Old Vic by next summer, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Yeah. Why don't they have like... You know the way they have like trailers before movies? Why yeah. don't they have like trailers before musicals on stage? Like well, they could when do When people that. just come out and see a couple of numbers and then leave. And then leave. <laughs> and, then, and then you watch, you know, Groundhog Day the musical, which no, is I what so you're... I so want to see there. that. I heard that was coming back, right? Yes, I've already got my tickets. Did you not you already got, get your tickets? I'm not organised, Helen. Oh. Did you not already get me tickets? I mean, no. <laughs> um, you know, obviously I care about you a, a lot, but not to that degree. <laughs> well, when this day repeats, I shall go back and buy tickets. Okay. That's excellent. Um, other news. Uh, there was a Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse news this week um, with the news that Deadpool's Karen Sony is joining um, joining the cast. So that's yeah. cool. He's going yeah. to be a significant character. A yes. significant character. I Tell do love specifics. <laughs> uh, so the significant character is Pavatir Pabakar, who is also known as Spider-Man India. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, as I have said before, the Cross of Spider-Verse is my most anticipated film of this year. 
by quite some distance. You wash I, your dune mouth out. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's true. In my mind, this is already a five-star masterpiece. Everything else is playing for a second. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I love that they are really giving us more Spider-Man and going into all Spider these... Spider-Persons. Diff- <laughs> Spider-Persons, thank you. Uh, giving us more Spider-Persons and going into all these different universes. Um, the challenge is going to be making these characters significant but also still keeping that focus mm. on Miles. Uh, they did a really good job with that in the first film. I expect that they'll do it again in this mm. one as well. Yeah, I'm pretty psyched about this. I am. Yeah. More this psyched is... than you are. About this oh, don't, you. Be <laughs> don't be ridiculous. Come on, come on. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, this is a kid from Mumbai who's given the powers of a spider by an ancient yogi. Which is cool. That's just inherently awesome. Um, yes, and uh, and of course he'll be he'll be messing with my other cousin, um, Julia Stiles, on one branch of the family, and of course Oscar Isaac's uh, Miguel O'Hara on the other side of the family. Fair. Um, you need to start documenting all these causes that you have. The O'Hara. You know, like I, I mean, you know, Catherine O'Hara, Scarlett O'Hara. We don't talk so much. See, and I've her, just got uh, you know. I've got Danny Dyer and Danny Dyer. Like that's it. I mean, you say that like it's a bad thing. The Danny. You're doing fine. How about the War Men? Oh, I need to investigate mm. that. War people, Helen. Sorry. <laughs> but yes, it's yet another good person uh, to the cast. And also another person taking multiple roles in different superhero m- movies and indeed universes. Although, given that Karen Sony was in Deadpool, you know, you remember him, his cab driver. I mean, it could be the same universe because Deadpool just yeah. doesn't care about it. <laughs> Deadpool gives no fucks. Yes. Speaking of universes and Deadpool, that brings us neatly to <laughs> Hugh Jackman. And Deadpool 3. All things lead us to Hugh Jackman. I mean, all things yeah. lead me, certainly, to Hugh Jackman, that's true. But, um, but yeah, so he's, we've known for ages that he was going to be back as Wolverine mm. in Deadpool 3. The interesting thing is that he was talking about The Sun, his new movie, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, to Le Parisien, and he said it will even be a dual role, He t- apparently. So the question is, what does that mean? Is it variant... Wolverine? Is it that clony dude who turned up in Logan and, you know, was quite upsetting because he attacked the real one? What does it mean? Who are we talking about? Maybe he's playing Wolverine and his character from The Greatest Showman. <laughs> How would that be a Wolverine? Yeah. I mean, the possibilities are endless because of the meta nature of Deadpool. So yeah. honestly, there's not much that's off the table. I, do you know what? <laughs> if I had to put money on it, Mm-hmm. I'd say he's playing Wolverine and he's playing Hugh Jackman. Whoa. That's a good shout. I yeah. like it. He'll that, be play, at some point, he'll be playing Hugh Jackman. Is that yeah. a dire guarantee? That is, that is a dire warning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I, can, I can believe that. I think mm-hmm. there's been some mentions of Jackman, so that makes sense mm-hmm. to me. Okay. Jack people. Sold. <laughs> that is written in stone. You heard it here first or at least 15th. Um, <laughs> there was also a trailer this week for David Lowry's Peter Pan and Wendy. Yes. There was, yeah. including Captain Hook Jude Law. Yeah, yes. who I literally didn't recognise. Neither uh, did I. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a good thing or not. Um, yeah. It looks fine, doesn't it? Like, it looks fine. I can't. I have no criticisms of it, other than I don't feel a pressing need for another Peter Pan film. Exactly. And this film, this trailer didn't change my mind on yeah. that. Mm. Um, maybe more footage will as we get closer to release, but at this point, I really need something to convince me as to why there's a need for this mm. I'm not feeling it right now okay I hear you mm-hmm. and I kind of feel it to, to some degree as well it, it feels like it's it's shot in a way that's becoming over familiar for those kind of fantasy movies just the colours and the the, the, the the tone of the thing what I will say is that David Lowry made Pete's Dragon 
which was super delightful and was not a film that I was excited about on paper mm. beyond having the word dragon in it, which obviously, you know, <laughs> plus 10 points. Um, but actually turned out to be utterly, utterly wonderful. So I kind of feel like maybe this is going to go the same way, you know? Maybe this will be the Peter Pan film to kind of restore our faith. I, I should I just, I missed a segue. We were talking about Hugh Jackman. The last major Peter Pan <laughs> film was the freaking Joe Wright one yeah. with... Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. What am I doing? Oh, it's hard to say, Helen. I don't even know. Um, but the very first thing I did for Empire was go to the premiere of the PJ Hogan one. I didn't one, know this. You, know? you did? Yeah. I remember this. I did the interviews for that. I did uh, Jeremy Sumter and, uh, and and Hugh Jackman and... Not Hugh Jackman. Not Hugh Jackman. What's his name? Isaacs. Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, who is my Captain Hook. Like, hashtag yeah. not my Captain Hook. Anyone who's not Jason Isaacs, <laughs> he is my Captain Hook. Uh, yeah. I just find it really interesting. Like, you know, I, I've watched Peter Pan, the animated film growing up, but out of all the those classic Disney films is the one that I've never really returned to in any respect. And it's the one which seems to be getting the most remakes and adaptations. And I'm intrigued by it. It's I, a classic book in its own right. It's not yeah. just the Disney film, you know. Yeah, that's true. So um, but, it has yeah. that going for it. The hashtag also, not my Lost Boys, frankly. <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, yeah. your Lost Boys are, are led by a vampire, Keeper Sutherland. So. Indeed, which yeah. was, uh, you know, Jay and Barry, it's not quite, I would say, what was implied in the original text, but I just think it's a, it's a fairly faithful spiritual adaptation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> Anything else? Um, I mean, frankly, it's not been the newsiest week, if mm. I'm honest with you. There hasn't been a ton. So I'm kind of inclined to say no, and it's not just because I'm saving all the TV news for the Pilot TV podcast, which goes out on Monday. Uh, but yeah. Ooh, The Night Manager Season 2. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, in, if we're going to go into TV news, yes, Tom Hiddleston is returning for The Night Manager Season 2, which is amazing because The Night Manager Season 1 was phenomenal. Was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so it's good that he's going to be back in that. Robert De Niro is doing a thriller series for Netflix called Zero Day. And did either of you watch the trailer for FUBAR? No. So no. FUBAR is Arnie's first TV series. Whoa. <laughs> which is coming to Netflix. And I'm reserving judgment because it's a very short trailer and you can't really get a proper flavour for it. But someone does punch him in the bollocks. So, uh, huh. you know. I mean, brave man. Yeah. Or woman, I guess. Yeah. yeah, well done. The only other thing I think this week that everybody will want to know about is the fact that there is a new trailer out for Ted Lasso. And it it does lean heavily on you You love us all. You just want to see us again. We're not going to do much more than that than remind you of that fact. Mm -hmm. But I'm still super excited. Yeah. I can neither confirm nor deny that I have the new season of Ted Lasso, <gasps> or at least part of it. I have seen... I can neither confirm nor deny that I may have watched the first episode. I can neither confirm nor deny that I haven't <laughs> checked my Apple Press account and don't know. absolutely do that. Believe, Helen. Believe. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I am really, really excited. I know the second season wasn't as beloved as the first. Well, it was different. It was, it, it was, it was different because it went from being a half-hour feel-good comedy to a kind of 40-minute, slightly bleak drama, which was an interesting pivot for that show. Absolutely. But a lot of the stuff they were doing within that Pivot was really, really interesting, especially as it pertained to Nate. Nate, Nate the Great. Uh, yes. And I'm really intrigued as to whether a full on redemption is in the cards with him or if there's still more of the dark side story to tell. I think, I think that's not an or, I think it's an and. <laughs> mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, but that's really, really interesting. I, I'm, I can't wait. I, I got a lot of love for this series and for these characters. Uh, and Brett Goldstein being the funny, <laughs> yeah. awesome dude he is. I'm, I'm very excited for this final season. Yeah. 
Me too. He's here. He's there. He's <laughs> every fucking where. Roy Kent. Yeah. Roy Kent. Anyway, on that on that triumphant note, let us leave movie news because there hasn't been much, as we say, mm. uh, and t- make time for another guest. And mm. it is now, again, we're going chronologically, the <laughs> turn of Christopher Landon, who made the deeply fun Freaky in 2020. And if you missed that for pandemic-related reasons, please get after it. Um, he also made the likes of Happy Death Day to you. And he returned to Netflix last week with We Have a Ghost, which is the story of a down-on-their-luck family led by Captain America, sorry, Anthony Mackie, (laughs) who discovered that they have a David Harbour-shaped ghost in their attic. Mm. So our Chris sent himself along to talk to Landon, and here's what he had to slay. Say. (laughs) Hey, everyone, it's Chris here. Just jumping in real quick, uh, as is my wont, to set up a little bit of context for this interview with Christopher Landon because I don't think James and Helen had heard it before they set it up. So there is a point in this interview where we talk about Christopher Landon's father and how his father passed in a way, impacted him as a kid growing up. And just for that context, his father is Michael Landon, who is the star of Little House in the Prairie and Highway to Heaven and was a very, very famous actor. So there you go. Context duly established. Here is the interview with Christopher Landon. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined in the Emperor Podcast by the writer and director of We Have a Ghost, Christopher Landon. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Where are you at the moment? Uh, I am in Santa Barbara, California, where it is, mu- where, where it is much earlier than you. <laughs> it is. It's, we should say for the, for the listeners, it's 11 p.m. for me at the moment, and I've, I've just come off the back of, uh, I don't know whether you follow uh, soccer, uh, Crispa, it's uh, the, I've just my my team. I'm wearing a Liverpool football club jacket. My team has just been absolutely savaged in the uh, in the big in the big football tournament over here. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm doing well. This could this could be a really fun interview. <laughs> Great, perfect. It's, it's going to be a cry I'm for help. Here <laughs> yeah, we you, go. <laughs> you need to talk me off a ledge, basically over the next fifteen minutes or so. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so, in the interest of that, your film is a is a is a pay in to. It's a very different film, I would say, tonally from what we are maybe used to you from from you as a director, and it's it's a pen to hope. I would say we have a ghost. It's 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 there's a lightness there that I think people who had maybe watched Freaky might be surprised by. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna be like, wait a minute, is this the same guy? <laughs> <laughs> but that was always a plan, I'm guessing. It was. It's funny though. I wrote this before Freaky. Um, and Freaky was kind of my interim movie while I was trying to get this one made. Um, so it just goes to show how fucked up I am. <laughs> you know, I could write something nice and then kill lots of people in horrible ways and then go back to doing something nice. So where did it, where did it come from? Because I know this is based on a, on a short story. So it is based on a short story. Um, and I read it. I fell in love with it right away. I kind of knew exactly what kind of movie I wanted it to become. Uh, something that had more scale and, you know, some heart, um, but also still kind of feeling tethered to my, to my filmography, you know? So it didn't feel like it was a complete crazy pivot, you know? Yeah. In in terms of it's in conversation with the films you grew up loving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it had, you know, it's got, you know, a lot of Amblin in it. Um, and a lot of other things. And I even reference a lot of, of movies in the movie, um, sort of sort of paying homage and, you know, dropping little Easter eggs here and there. Um, 
but yeah, it kind of felt like the culmination of, of my life um, in a lot of ways, just sort of all these different sort of filmic influences, but also personal ones as well. Yeah, can you talk? Uh, I'm I'm fascinated by that as well because you know you've you've all through your career you have embraced a very interesting personal approach to your movies, and is that something that that, that very much you wanted to continue here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think so much of what I do and what I've done has been informed by you know losing my dad when I was 16. So mm. there's a lot of death, a lot of a lot of grieving and processing grief in my work, even though I try and dress it up as a something really fun. <laughs> um, but I've always been kind of sorting through all those those kinds of feelings. And 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 in this movie in particular, um kind of, you know, even though it does touch on that a bit, it it really kind of delves more into the relationships between fathers and sons, um, which was something that I was thinking about quite a bit when I was writing the film, just because I have, I'm a newer dad. So I have two, two sons, hmm. um, they're three and five. And, um, and, and when I became a father, I really started reflecting on fatherhood, but it's more specifically my relationship with my dad. Um, because I never got to have those adult to adult, to adult conversations with him. Um, and so this was sort of an opportunity for me to kind of look at some of that stuff and to kind of examine it and go, oh, yeah, you know, when you're a kid, you have the tendency to really deify your parents, I think, a lot, especially your father. And my dad was very godlike to me. Um, and then as I became an adult and and when I became a father, I quickly realized, oh, God, you know, he was just human and fallible and full of mistakes and, um, you know, it was just a lot for me to be able to kind of play with and think about, but again, in a, within the framework of a movie that I think is really entertaining and fun. And again, you know, not, not to go too much into your, into your, your personal life and your, and your background, but it must have been my social security number. Is- <laughs> your social security number. I want your social security number and the name of your first pet. If, if you can, and then <laughs> I'm really going to go for it. Um, but, but yeah, it strikes me as well with your, with your father as well. I mean, you're talking about you, you deify your father, which is a natural thing for any kid growing up. But you must have also had an interesting experience where your dad was deified by pretty much the the whole of America as well. And that must yeah. have been a really, really interesting thing and a, a difficult thing to get to, to come to terms with. Absolutely. I mean, he was he was larger than life in every conceivable respect. Um, but then also after he died and I was able to really think a lot about my life with him and and sort of just things his relationship with different people in my family I started to kind of see the cracks you know um but I just like I said I just didn't get to have that conversation with him about oh hey you know must have felt you must have felt an enormous amount of pressure having to be that person all the time when you were just a a normal guy like everyone else Mm -hmm. um and um and so it's kind of interesting that frank is kind of weirdly the opposite in some ways like he's someone in search of fame um and in search of that spotlight and that moment um and i feel like my dad in a lot of ways was kind of always trying to get away from it in a lot of ways yeah um but um but yeah like i said it's movies are wonderful places to work out your bullshit if you can <laughs> it's really fun when you can trick someone else into paying you for your therapy <laughs> and that's kind of what i've done 
here. But no, to, to go back to the sort of broader question, which is, I, yes, I have tr- I've tried to make my movies as personal as possible. And I've tried to kind of thrust a certain kind of sentiment into a genre that traditionally does not welcome it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I, I've, I've tried to make personal horror films and it's not a thing that's easily done or done, I think, often. Um but I really wanted to kind of ask that question. Like, why can't, why can't a gory violent movie also be full of heart, you know, and why can't it say something, you know, beyond let's kill a bunch of people. Um, And so that's really what I tried to do with freaky. And that's what I've done in happy death day. And I think to a much lesser degree in terms of violence, it's what I've done here, which is I'm going to take this kind of dusty tropey old ghost story and invert it. And then kind of, fill it up with a bunch of personal things and with this movie as well you're are you even going back to you know scout's guide to the zombie apocalypse which some people might might look at it and go oh it's like it's like a modern day monster squad but there mm. are really rough edges there and it's you know it's it's r-rated and it's gory and it's violent and and here you have to deliberately sand off those rough edges was that something that you naturally found yourself doing was that did that come naturally to you you know, it it was it came naturally in the sense that I know how to I know how to modulate and I know how to change gears and I know how to recognize the audience that I'm making a film for. Um and I was imagining watching this movie with my with my kids, you know, not necessarily right, right now, but they're they're close, like especially my my almost six-year-old. I think he's like a couple years away from this one. Um and that really excited me because I felt like ever, otherwise everything else is going to wait a bit longer. Um, if my husband has anything to do with it, it will be much longer. Um, he can't stop me. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it was it was not it was not tough for me to to sort of bring it down a little bit. But but having said that, like I still always try to sneak weird little subversive things into the movie that probably don't really belong there, you know, and there's, there's a, there's one moment in particular where, where um, our characters are in a motel room and Ernest, the ghost discovers something behind a painting. And I don't know if I'm supposed to do spoilers or not spoilers here, but, um, but yeah, yeah, like he, he finds something explicitly weird and sexual (laughs) in a motel room in a seedy motel room. And he's like, catches this weird moment through a peephole. Um, Yeah. So like, I'm always trying to just still remind people, okay, sure, this is nice. And yeah, this is sweet. But like, it's also still a little bit weird and a little bit, you know, me. Um, (laughs) And again, that's where I don't, I feel like I can't help myself. And I remember, I think even like the studio at one point flagged that moment. And they were like, do we really have to do this? And I was like, yeah, like, it's just me. It's like, I want, I want the movies to kind of be colored by my DNA. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I still try and smuggle in all kinds of little weird bits <laughs> even my nice movies no i i appreciated that uh, that was uh, that was great is that something that's come from your own personal motel experiences you know, <laughs> hearing hearing no. things next door no but i think it's that constant sort of that all these these sort of nods and easter eggs to other movies classic horror films that I grew up watching. And so early in the film, there's like a red ball that rolls between Kevin's feet. And that's like my changeling moment. Mm. And then the peephole is obviously my psycho. Um, And so I'm just always like, just referencing 
these movies as I go along. I can't help myself really. So you, you, so you're saying there that uh, that your eldest kid's not quite ready for this yet. So when did you first pop your horror cherry, so to speak? So funny enough, Psycho was the first movie I ever saw that was a horror film. Um, and I was very young. I was probably four when I saw that movie. And my parents didn't know that I was watching it because I was hiding behind a big chair that was in their room while they were watching it. I snuck into their room and, and watched the whole film. And I even weirdly got through the shower scene without freaking out. Like I was just just catatonic, like frozen watching it. Um, and then it wasn't until the scene at the very end when Norman Bates comes running down the basement stairs dressed as his mother, you know, with the knife. Um, that was when I, I just started shrieking and my parents realized I had been in the room the whole time. So that was like my first dip into horror. And then my parents divorced shortly thereafter, not because of that, <laughs> I hope. Um, <laughs> And, and then my dad had us on the weekends. It was that classic, like Friday to Sunday father kind of situation. Um, and we would go to the video store every weekend. Um, and it was always like renting like nice Disney stuff, but like there was the horror section that was like the forbidden zone, but my sister and I would linger and like wander in there and look at the boxes. Um, and he just kind of started to let us rent them like randomly, like, and he tried to kind of, watchdog it a bit and make sure it wasn't too graphic you know because this was the 80s so it was like the heyday of like vhs you know like straight to video horror um and so my sister and i started renting these movies probably when i was about six um six or seven and started to watch them every single weekend and we watched i don't know like five to seven movies a weekend um, and all of them, all of them. It just was like, at a certain point, it was all bets were off. And so there, there was no horror film I had not seen in the entire store. That's amazing. I thought I started young, but that's <laughs> that amazing. So, and my mom didn't understand like why, because I understood the code of conduct. And so like, I did not, I did not tell my mom what we were watching because I knew if I told her she would stop us. And so, but I would have nightmares constantly have nightmares and sleep under my covers and sleep with my lights on. And she just thought like I was this very anxious kid and didn't realize it until years into it. And then she went fucking crazy and was so mad at my dad um, <laughs> and started to do like contraband, like searches of our rooms and like find books that were scary and throw them away and all that kind of stuff. Oh my god! Oh my god! But you know, pivotal, pivotal experiences, character forming Absolutely. experiences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so formative for me. You know, yeah. like it was, it was just. I knew at a very early age that it was what I wanted to do. Somehow, I didn't know what path or what version of it, but I knew that I wanted to be involved in it somehow. So what's the? Because uh, I, I like you. Know, I, I I had the same experience. Went to the you know the video store when I was a kid. Was transfixed by uh, terrifying VHS covers. Some of which I was allowed to rent. Some of which I didn't um, until much later. But you know, what's the what's the the VHS cover that that stands out in your head? What's the one that really was most alluring to you? I mean, there were a couple. There was the original Maniac. Yeah. That one scared me so bad because it was so gruesome. It was just like, 
this guy with like a bulge in his jeans with a fucking severed head. <laughs> it was so like graphic. And he had like a huge bulge. It was like a giant dick in there. Um, and so maybe that was also the gay of it all. But um, <laughs> but also like weird ones that didn't like graphically were interesting to me. Like I remember this old horror film called Visiting Hours, you know, which was. Oh, yeah which had the like facade of a hospital, but the lights in the hospital formed a skull, you know? So like just stuff like that, that I thought was like, and you know, I was obsessed with a movie called Alice, Sweet Alice, which I think had multiple titles over the years, but it was this, you know, this old uh, horror film that Brooks, I think it was Brooke Shields first movie. Um, and it just absolutely terrified me. And the cover was terrifying because it was just this mask sitting on the ground. And, um, I don't know. I just, but the covers were amazing. They were just completely full on, but there were some that my, my dad did not let us watch. Like he would not let us watch. I spit on your grave. For me, squirm was one of the, the films, uh, the, the killer Horror. worms movie. Uh, yeah. that, 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 that cover always, always terrified me. And, uh, and as, as means of a clumsy segue back into, we have a ghost, the devil's reign with William Shatner and Ernest Borgnine was a, was a oh, yeah. cover that always terrified me as well because it was someone's face. I think it might have been actually Ernest Borgnine's face melting uh, yeah. in the rain. And of course, Ernest Borgnine isn't in your film, but he kind of is as well. He's in spirit. Yes, he is. He's deeply re- – oh, he's referenced in the, in the, in the short story. Mm. Um, that's how he's described as looking. Um, to the point where, like, we were really trying to figure out, can we find someone who looks like Ernest Borgnine? Um, but yeah, it was more Ernest Borgnine in, in spirit, you know, um, but more like schlubby tax accountant with a bad comb over and a bowling shirt, you know, that version. And you immediately thought David Harbour. David Harbour, all the way. You know, it's funny because he, David is is obviously, he's, he's a great actor. Um but there was something about him, especially because he doesn't have dialogue in the movie. And he reminds me a bit of, of, um, of young Frankenstein of, um, yes. oh my God, what Peter Boyle. there's a Peter Boyleness to David that I think is great. And because there's a kind of a wounded, a wounded fawn kind of like, you know, like this, this kind of broken toy vibe that he can, that he does so well. Um, and so it makes you really fall in love with him and feel sorry for him and want to help him. Um, and that was really what I needed was someone who just can bring all of that stuff to the surface. And and that's something that he's really good at. So. That's exactly it. And there, there's a scene, again, not to give too much away, but where he's trying to communicate with a young girl in a playground. And I just felt so much like I was watching Karloff. I was watching yeah. Peter, Peter Boyle. It's, he's so great. Yeah. He brings that. And it's so amazing. And there's there's... Very, 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 very few actors who could do that. Yeah, he's tremendous. And uh, and to bring it back to the VHS cover, obviously this is a Netflix movie, so it will never have people will never have that experience of being in a video never store. Have physical media. Yeah, yeah. They'll, never, they'll never they'll never have that. But you know, if they had, would you put the comb over front and center on the video box as the most terrifying thing I have seen in movies in a long time? <laughs> it would just be the floating comb over. There'd be no face. <laughs> It would just be this comb over suspended with maybe blood dripping down the side. What you could do is you could have had like a a, a mirrored cover. So the the mirror reflects your face, but with the comb over on top of the head. 
I think Netflix was at one point trying to do an like some sort of awful um like TikTok filter that would do that. <laughs> and I don't know if that actually was the best way to sell the movie, so I think they abandoned it. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. It's we have a ghost. Not we yeah. have a comb over. And uh but I've got to let you go in a second, but I I've got to ask about what's what's next for you uh, as well. Um I know you've been you've been there's been interviews with you out and about in the last couple of days where you've been asked incessantly about Happy Death Day 3, Freaky 2, and that the sort of melange Freaky of the Day. Freaky Death Day, <laughs> you know, but has anything changed in the last 24 to 48 hours since you asked, last answered that question? Nothing has changed. Everything <laughs> is exactly the same. My phone is not ringing. Um uh so yeah that's that's all the same but i am i am still i'm i'm full steam ahead on a remake of of uh arachnophobia um and i'm super excited about that one um so that's should be next that's the next one i'm knocking on wood but yes never want to jinx these things because we're in that very critical moment now where it's like budgets are being done and cast lists are coming together and so it's super close but uh you never know all right. Well, I wish you all the best with, with Lat and with everything else that comes down the line. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Christopher Landon, thanks so much indeed. Okay, time for reviews. Now, in my defence, I've been teaching all week in Northern Ireland. Big hello to Orla, Amelia, James, Rebecca, Ilsa and Lydia. So I've seen very, very little uh, of what's out this week. But Amon, I know that you have seen this week's big film because you reviewed it for the magazine. Tell us about Creed Three. Creed Three, yes. Let so, the record show that he's currently punching the air. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Michael B. Jordan, where you at? No, please don't hurt me. Literally, Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors would knock me out in 10 seconds. And every time I see their posters, it's just inspiration. I need to get myself up because, my gosh. Um, but anyway, uh, Adonis Creed, once again, played by Michael B. Jordan, who's making his directorial debut with this film. He has moved on from a life in the ring to a life as a gym owner and a boxing promoter. Uh, but his past, which he's been trying to forget comes back to haunt him when Jonathan Majors his old childhood friend Damien Dame Anderson is his character name in this film he resurfaces he's a former boxing prodigy and he's eager to prove that he deserves a shot in the ring and that is where conflict arises one of the really good things about this film is that even though you know just by the formula of this film that Adonis versus Dame is inevitable, that childhood friendship, that brotherhood is always keenly felt, even in those conversations where there's a lot of tension. So I really, really love that. I love the family dynamic between Adonis, Bianca, played once again by Tessa Thompson, and their young daughter, Amara, who's deaf, played by Mila Kent. It's very sweet, but it's not syrupy. And it's very intimate as well. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that they're doing with that dynamic, especially as it pertains to the lessons that Adonis is passing down to his daughter, which is what they did a little bit in Creed 1 with Adonis and his father, Apollo. So I love that they're keeping that theme. Uh, Jonathan Majors, if you didn't know already... This is his year. Uh, I have not seen Magazine Dreams yet, but I'm very, very excited to uh, that play that Sundance later this year. Hopefully it gets a, a wider UK release later this year. Uh, but That's the one where he's a bodybuilder, right? That is yeah. correct. Uh, again, looking ridiculously buff. Um, <laughs> uh, he's obviously Kang in Quantumania. He's going to be a recurring villain in MCU. That's huge. And then he's now playing a villain, sort of, in this as well. Uh, There's as nothing the- like a dame. It's very true. It's very true. So, so yeah, um, it's really another really great performance. The, the the stuff that he does in the subtle acting moments is where he really 
proves that he's got this just amazing. There's a few moments, especially in that first meeting, there's a diner scene between Adonis and Dame. The little subtle bits of acting that he is doing, it's, it's interesting, I've seen it twice now. Mm. When you know sort of what is coming, what is why the plan is, it's interesting watching that performance again mm. to see what he's letting rise to the top and bubble over even as he's trying to keep his emotions and everything in check. It's a really great performance, but he, he's fantastic. How's the punchy-punchy stuff? <laughs> Let's get right to it. Okay. Um, the boxing is great. Um, there's a really great... The, the final fight especially, Michael B. Jordan's, Michael B. Jordan's direction all the way through is very solid, but the final fight is where he really shows his directorial flair. It goes very fantastical. He's made no secret of the fact, Michael B. Jordan, that he loves anime, and that influence comes through in a major way in that final fight. I love that it's not just there for directorial flair, which it absolutely is, but it actually plays a crucial storytelling role as well. So that's great. Um, but yeah, I, I I dug this. I know you saw it. Yeah. I, I desperately want to see it. I didn't get to see it, unfortunately, because oh. I couldn't make the screening. Uh, but I'm probably going to go and see it the night that this podcast goes. The podcast goes out on Friday. I'm going to go and see it tonight, I think. so. Awesome. Uh, I will say, that. like the only thing, again, that there's that formula to these movies and that rears its head more so in the final sort of third. Mm. I don't think the film needed to do that. It was setting up a lot of really interesting things that felt fresh, that felt unique. And I feel like nine films into the Rocky saga, that's exactly what you need. By the way, Rocky uh, is not in this film and the film does not suffer for it yeah. at all. Mm. Um, it's indebted to that character and to mm. that franchise, but it can stand on its own and this is a film that proves Well, this that. feels like a sink or swim moment, doesn't it? Like the training wheels are off, Rocky's gone, it's does Creed stand on his own two feet? Yeah. Mm. And I think the answer sounds like a yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So what do we give this? Four stars. Four and stars. And I stand by it. Well, one would hope so. <laughs> yeah. You reviewed it, so reviewed one it really like would hope. Out, yeah. <laughs> um, I've just realised I saw a second film this week. I saw a film, not in I saw a ghost. Face. Not I have a ghost, I saw a film. Yes. yes. Uh, but in your face, I have a second film. Yes. <laughs> What's your second film? My second film is Close. Uh, which is the uh, made a big noise at Cannes last year. Uh, I think it took the it took the Grand Prix at Cannes last year. Um, it is the second film from Lucas Don't, who made his debut with Girl in 2018. And this is about um, two 13 year old boys, Leo and Remy, who are played by Eden Dombreen and uh, Gustave Duval, mm. uh, respectively. And they are like best buddies. They live out in the countryside. Uh, Leo's parents have a flower farm, and we are literally in the most idyllic sort of images early in this film they're basically spending their summer holidays just running through fields of flowers <laughs> playing at soldiers having just the best times and they are casually close to one another they you know they lean on each other they share a bed when they sleep over at each other's houses um they're they're for, forever just sort of walking kind of almost shoulder to shoulder or kind of arms around each other or linked or whatever else and that's all fine until they start their new school. So basically kind of secondary school kind of level. Mm -hmm. And people start asking, are you a couple? Not necessarily in a hostile way, just mm -hmm. in a, oh, we see you're close. Are you a romantic couple? And Leo kind of freaks at this and, and starts pushing Remy away. And, and it's basically the story of the breakdown of this friendship. And oh, it is... Man unbelievably devastating. Mm. It, you know, look, it's something that at some point I feel like everyone has been through. All of us growing up had that friendship that just went away at some point and you just stopped being friends with that person. Helen, he's off for one week. He'll be back. <laughs> it's fine. I don't know. Why do we, how do we know, though? <laughs> you know, but it is, it's a really incredibly um, relatable 
thing and and uh, Don't's camera just gets in there super close on both of them and, and both of these boys have just astonishing performances and you just see every micro flicker of hurt in their face mm. when they're trying to be tough and they're trying to be stoic and everything else and it is it is genuinely quite traumatic so he gets in a yeah yeah i mean yes but but you know with none of the kind of levity and, and silliness at times oh. like I love it but silliness of, of, um, of that film so yeah really really a wonderful wonderful film but do kind of brace yourself because this is not an easy watch they are young vulnerable kids and, and they kind of you know hurt each other and it's it's a really, really sad thing. It's, but it's a, an amazingly made film. It is astonishingly performed. Just all credit to those actors and also to Daunt and his team for getting those performances from them. But it's really, really wonderful. If you can stand it, this is probably one of the films of the week mm. or, you know, month. Okay. So yeah, four stars from us for Close. Should we talk about The Independent? Yes, let's. So this is about like conspiracy and politics and oh, the mainstream media are bad, right? That's it. All, all the, the MSN. Yes, <laughs> uh, all, the, all the good stuff. Uh, this dropped on Sky earlier this week in a kind of sudden like, and, oh, it's a film, <laughs> hello, uh, which you didn't tell us about. Uh, but this film upset me because I felt catfished by this film okay. in quite a big way. So this is a film, this is directed by uh, by Amy Rice and it stars Jodie Turner-Smith as this Ooh. journalist who uh, it discovers a should we say, a political conspiracy. Mm. Now, the thing with this is like, it's called The Independent and it begins with a rally and it begins with John Cena as his independent candidate and he's going out there and basically he's, ta he's, he's talking a lot of sense, quite <laughs> frankly. He's talking about how, you know, you've got the Republicans who storm the, the Capitol and then you've got another party that just sits around and moans about it and he's basically talking about how the two-party politics in America is broken, the country's fucked and he's going to, you know, lead them through and, you know, it's the peacemaker. You take what he says at face value. <laughs> uh, you know, what I felt this would be was an exploration of the constraints of kind of two-party politics Politics. What it actually turns into, though, is a kind of triumph of the fourth estate fable. And it's not as insightful as All the President's Men, or Spotlight, or the final season of The Wire, or, let's be honest, any of the newsroom, which, I should point out, Amy Rice worked in the writer's room on, oh. um, which is kind of interesting. But <laughs> it, it begins with this really interesting premise because it takes place in post-Trump America. So they don't reference Trump by name, but they allude to him. They allude to the storming of the Capitol. They allude to the pandemic. You know, that setting, you know, the wounds from all that stuff are still very raw mm. and it it really hit home. It, it grounded it in this kind of dystopian future which we all fucking now live in. Mm. And I was like, I really want to see this film. I'm really interested to see how it's going to walk this line. But it sets up this idea and then it abandons it completely and what you end up getting is this slightly substandard you know, journalistic investigation political thriller where they're uncovering, ooh, politicians are, <gasps> whisper it, sometimes a bit corrupt. Who knew? <laughs> and it's just, there's no surprises here. Where it goes is kind of predictable as well. I will say that while I thought the script for this was not brilliant, the performances I thought were. And I think Jodie Turner-Smith is outstanding and Brian Cox is fucking Brian Cox. Yeah. And... There is a sense, I get the impression that the screenwriter of this film, uh, Evan Parter, I get the impression that they're very much a Succession fan because there was a sense of someone is having a lot of fun writing dialogue for Logan Roy here and he has some really good lines in there. I think some of hers are less good but he has some really good, really good ones in there. Uh, he calls someone an arrogant little boat shoe at one point. I was like, Ooh, oh, I love that. That's, that's a great line. Uh, you know, and, and Cena's in there, Cena's good as well. Like, yes, he plays this kind of he plays the character in a slightly odd way. Like, they remind you he's not a himbo by him going at one point, he goes, you know, I went to Yale. It's like, did you though? <laughs> um, but, but he's fine. And actually, I think seeing him in a kind of non 
physical role. He's physical in that he's an Olympian who's become a presidential candidate, right, okay. but it's not a physical role. And actually, he gives it this kind of Captain America earnestness, which I think works very well. I think his performance is strong. Slang turns up as this mm-hmm. kind of Southern fried newspaper Sold. editor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, there's, there's Ann Dowd in it as well? Ann Dowd is in it. Timothy yeah. Busfeld from the West Wing is in oh, it as well, hey. albeit very, very briefly. So it is a kind of like throw a stick and you'll hit five people you know from that thing that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's good stuff there. As I say, good performances. I just think it wastes an opportunity to explore something that's genuinely very interesting Mm. and that not enough is really said about. The fact that the political system as it stands in America, and let's be honest, not just in America, is kind of broken. And the way that third-party candidates just don't have the funds, the infrastructure, the support, and the electoral system is kind of not set up to allow them to break into races. All they can do is steal votes, frankly, from other candidates. Mm. And I thought that was what it would be, and it wasn't that. So... You know, is it, is it, it, I mean, it's fine. It's okay. I don't think we have an official Empire review for it at the moment. I feel like it's somewhere between a two and a three, depending on what day of the week it is. Take it as a man. Now, I'm on, you've seen this as well. Yeah. What's your independent opinion? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Honestly, I pretty much agree with everything you just said. Um, it's just a little bit too superficial and yeah. I wanted more from it. But I did enjoy Brian Cox on sweary form. <laughs> uh, it's always good to see Jodie Turner-Smith on my screen as well. So yeah, performance is good but and, and absorbing enough in the moment that you're not bored yeah. or annoyed yeah. that you're watching it. But in an era where there's so much good stuff on this subject and not just in film but also in TV, some of which you just mentioned, you really need something to help put you over the top mm. or at least in that same league and this film doesn't have that. Did you have that moment that I had when I went, oh right, this is what real journalists do. <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always nice <laughs> watching a film where those sorts of ethics are discussed at the heart and people are really desperately trying to adhere to that and do the right thing. I'll always like watching those types of things. It's why the West Wing and mm. stuff like that is something that I will always be constantly drawn to. So it's nice to see that on screen. Yeah, but there, there. I mean, there's better political intrigue. Yeah, absolutely, very much, very absolutely. Much so, yeah. Let's just watch the West Wing again, right? <laughs> I mean, it's been a couple of weeks. I think that's it. If you want the political side of it, watch the West Wing. If you want the journalism part of it, watch the newsroom. Done. Mm. Done. Aaron Sorkin has you covered, mm. except from all these games. Next, <laughs> uh, a film that I have also seen. Um, it's on Netflix already. It is The Strays. Uh, Amon, do you want to start us off on this one? So yes, this stars Ashley Madeque as Cheryl. Uh, This is years after walking out on her family to start a new life. She now is known as Neve. She lives a very uh, nice life uh, in the quaint British suburb. But then two unknown figures who may or may not be from her past uh, show up in town and then threaten to unravel this nice life that she's built for herself. Uh, I'm going to start with a positive. I really like Ashley Madeque's performance in this. She's really, really good at bringing all the nuance to all the big themes that this film wants to discuss. So there's a lot about code switching, especially that really resonated Mm -hmm. with me and that this film does a lot of really good stuff on. Um, So I thought she was great. And again, those themes, in many respects, this feels like it's taking some inspiration from Get Out. And you can feel Mm -hmm. that in the screenplay and in the performances and as a fan of that film like I think that film was a masterpiece and us there's a lot of us in this as well a lot of us in this as well Um, Rosemary's Baby as well all of that stuff is mixed up here and there's a lot of really good things that this film is discussing but the ending the last 15 minutes feels like it undercuts that in a big way and 
to the point where I'm like, what are you trying to say if this is how you're ending the film? Uh, because I don't know what it is. And that was the big frustration for me watching this one. I think I, I, I was okay with the, again, I'm not going to get into spoilers. I was okay yeah. with the like final moment for her. For the final moment of the film for her, I'm not saying her final moment, mm. the final moment of the film for her, I was not okay with the final final act of the film yeah. for other characters. I think it it kind of wants to do that sort of um, uh, funny games kind of yeah. home invasion terror thing. Uh, but to do that, you have to have cold-blooded psychopaths. And this film doesn't have cold-blooded psychopaths. It has nuanced or more nuanced characters. Or it had until the final act. Or it act. did have yeah. until the final act. So it doesn't... It that that sort of did tear it apart for me. I was I was really interested in the first half. I thought it was a really uh, original way of kind of coming at some of these ideas that, mm -hmm. as you say, you know, have been have been done by Jordan Peele and people like that, but mm -hmm. not here in the UK so much. And then it just sort of doesn't. Mm. Yeah, it's funny course. though, isn't it? Because we should say like, so it begins with her having a very working class life, living on a council estate with an abusive mm -hmm. husband, and she walks out on that old life. And then we cut to literally two decades later. She's a trophy wife in a kind of very middle class suburban family, having left her own life behind. And then we have it's been to like four chunks with a little bit of temporal trickery flipping between them, a little bit of perspective shifting, and. You're absolutely right. The ending of this doesn't work for me because it feels like it's been transplanted from a different film, crucially with different characters because mm. it just doesn't work with the characters they have. But oddly, the last act of this, while it's problematic, is the only part of this film that I found interesting because I thought it had... It, like, it wants to talk about race. It wants to talk about class. It wants mm -hmm. to talk about code shifting, exactly as you say. But I feel like it, it doesn't seem to understand how it's approaching them. And I felt the screenplay wasn't quite on point enough. While the central performance is actually quite interesting because yeah. it's quite altered. Like, it's a slightly quirky, odd performance as she puts mm -hmm. it through. And... You know, we don't want to get, go into spoiler territory, but it's interesting how her old life bleeds into the new one. Mm. And it feels to me like this starts off as kind of a psychological family drama slash thriller, which then turns into a Jordan Peele horror film. And it almost feels like someone spliced the final reel of another film in here. Mm. And I, at that point, I was like, on the one hand, I'm suddenly really interested because this has blown my mind. But on the other hand, this doesn't work. Mm. So I was very, very torn on that. It was suggested to me, and I think it's absolutely right, and would change the film in such a brilliant way. What if that opening five minutes of the film, you just take that out? I think that might have been better. That would have been made the film immediately more interesting because yes. you'd be really trying to figure out What's what going is on? going on and the way that this film just immediately gives you. That's a really good point because my mm. whole thing through the beginning is I thought, I see what they're doing here, but the storytelling feels a little unsophisticated. It feels like it could have been more interesting. It's that mm. whole thing about, you know, when they say like, with Passengers, Titanic Amongst the Stars, <laughs> if you started Passengers when Jennifer Lawrence wakes up, that's a much more interesting film. Yeah. Mm. A much more interesting film. So, and I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay. Fine. The poster quote, Helen, says that Lawrence and Pratt are magnetic. <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. You lose that that sort of like prologue to this and suddenly we're all playing catch up. It keeps you on exactly. your toes. It is a more interesting film. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, so that is The Strays from Nathaniel Martello-White, uh, who's uh, also an actor uh, and a writer uh, in this case. Um, he didn't act in this one, but he is an actor generally. He was in Small Acts, for example. Um, but yes, Empire gave this three stars, which is a recommendation. I think all of us are perhaps slightly to the lower end there, but, uh, but there is an interesting idea here. It's just not 100% delivered.
And there's one more film this week, isn't there? Subject, come on. Yes. So this is a film directed by Camilla Hall and Jennifer Texera. And they are filmmakers who are examining the impact that documentaries have on their subjects, hence the title, Subjects. Uh, So it's really about the filmmaking, in a sense, that goes into it, but also the good and the bad that comes from being on the receiving end of being the focus of a documentary uh, such as the many that aren't of discussion in, in this film. I really, really like this or was com- really compelled by what the film was saying to the degree that it's going to make me think about these things actively as I watch documentaries. Um, there's one really big moment sort of towards the end of the documentary where one of the subjects is saying that an actor was coming to her to learn more about her story, but she's not going to profit from that. This particular story is a very harrowing thing that she is going to be put through that again. All the people in her life are going to be asking her about that again. There's no upside for her. And she wasn't asked about greenlighting this film. It's just something that HBO, Netflix, etc. wanted to greenlight and wanted to do. Um, so they get into issues like that, but also issues of positivity. Like they, they they really detail it. It's not just all bad. No, no. Sometimes there are good things that can result from the documentaries to the point where people who are innocent get released from prison, that sort of thing. Um, so they don't just... They don't, yeah, it's, it's, line, it's, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah it's, it's not just one or the other. I, li- I like how they really show sort of that, that entire mm-hmm. spectrum. So yeah, it was really, really impressive. And as I say, it's going to make me think about watching documentaries and how I watch documentaries mm-hmm. and what goes into that a lot more than I had previously. This is a very current uh, issue at the moment, isn't yeah. there, after that uh, that Sundance-supported uh, documentary last year. But yeah. uh, what's fascinating about this one, I mean, um, just just for people who have seen things like The Wolf Pack, The Staircase, Capturing the Freedmen's Hoop Dreams, yeah. that's the kind of stuff we're talking about here, right? Yeah. These are these are big, big, successful documentaries, if you, mm-hmm. unquote, you know, Oscar nominees and Oscar winners, I think, in a couple of cases. Yeah. And you know, things that were seen around the world. So it must be... It's a yeah, really big issue. That, I mean, one, one of the things issue. that the film discusses is um, the, the matter of pay. A lot mm-hmm. of these people who are the subjects of documentaries, money is at times getting made off of them, but they're not getting any of that at all. And so they get into that issue as well. It's really, really interesting stuff, which I haven't really considered in any major way that this film brings to light. It's really good. Awesome. So we don't have an Empire review of this yet. What would you give this one? I would give it four stars. All right. Oh, so it's a good week. So that's four stars for Creed, three for Close and four subjects. So uh, so yeah, get yourself to watch some movies this week. There's a lot out there. Um, it is time now for our final guest. Uh, again, we've gone chronologically, but we've also kind of built to a bit of a climax here because <laughs> we are, of course, talking now to an actor turned director who appears to be as outrageously talented behind the camera as he is in front of it, which I think is just unfair. Mm. Uh, Michael B. Jordan, for it is he, uh, got his start in things like The Wire and Friday Night Lights, so he really didn't ever have a bad patch um, <laughs> before his incredible turn in Fruitvale Station, you know, really put his name on the on the map for, uh, for movies. And since then, he's been absolutely chewing up the screen in the Creed films, in the first Black Panther, uh, basically anything he touches. He now, of course, makes his directorial debut, as you heard, in Creed 3, and he came into town recently to talk to Chris. Please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in the Empire Podcast by the star and director of Creed 3, Michael B. Jordan. How are you, sir? Doing great. How are you? I am not too bad. Not Love too it. bad at thanks all. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, thanks for the, you know, Listen, I am, I am a huge fan of this franchise and, you know, you did a bang-up job. And I have to say, you know, was this something that you were hankering to do from a long time, you know, itching to direct? I think once 
you know, it was a seed that was planted years ago, I think, with, with Ryan, you know, the yeah. idea of just directing, not knowing exactly what it was going to be, but just, you know, just stepping behind the camera at some point. Uh, I think he saw me kind of, you know, itching a little bit or, you know, he knows I was very curious and ambitious and, you know, um, and wanting to, you know, evolve and grow. Um, and, and once the idea of me directing Creed three came about, I, it, you know, I've been daydreaming about it for, you know, for, for some years now. So, um, this is kind of like a labor of love and, um, an evolution of, you know, just a lot of things that fell into the right place in order for me to do this. You say there, the, the, when the idea of, of you directing Creed three came about, where did it come from? Did it come from you or did it come from uh, another source? It came from a combination of a, a bunch of things. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, from, you know, Erwin Winkler, um, you know, bringing it up to, you know, me suggesting, you know, that I, that I do it, you know, it, it was a, it was a few moments and things that kind of happened, uh, for, for, for me to step behind the camera. I just felt like it was the right time, you know, um, that I was the right person for it. You know, I, I didn't think anybody else could kind of come in and tell a story more about a guy that I knew the best, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, so, you know, playing a guy for nine years and, you know, uh, you know, Outside of Ryan, you know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think anybody else could could have done it. But that doesn't mean, I mean, you know, because obviously you have now double the workload, mm -hmm. and I've spoken to a lot of actor directors over the years, mm -hmm. and I'm always fascinated about that process. Like, how do you direct yourself? How do you assess your own performance when you have a million other things to be doing and a million other decisions to be making? I mean, you have a great team. Yeah, you know, I think having a great team and having producers that you trust that knows the story, that knows the character, that knows the movie that you're trying to make, and that's all set in stone. Well, not in stone, but that's really set and set and established in pre-production. I think we spend enough time working on a script and a character, um, you know, drafts and drafts and drafts of the script. By the time you get there, you know, you kind of know what you need as far as performance-wise. You know, I think I think that's more of in the edit. I think in the edit. It's it's like more of a you know cutting your own performance. I think is 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 mm -hmm. is, is a mm -hmm. little bit different. You know performing it. You know I, I'll, I'll give options. You know so I'll, I'll know if I want to give a, you know a performance like this. You know happy sad whatever just the okay, latest terms yeah, of yeah. that. So I have you know I'm collecting all my groceries. I'm going shopping. <laughs> you know when, I, when I'm when I'm you know what I'm saying I'm acting. I'm okay. I need this. I need that. I need that. I need that to match this. I need Bianca's performance. You know to match that. I need this. Yeah. So by the time I get in the edit. I could mix and match and I could do whatever I need to do in order to craft the, the story that I need. I often ask this as well of, of, of directors and actors about day one, about all the preparation. You've been preparing for this thing as a director now for months, maybe even a couple of years by the time you actually get, you know, get up to, to day one. What was day one for you? And how prepared were you? Were you in it, if you first of to, all, if day you one? Guess, if you had to guess what was the first scene that we shot, I'm, I'm, there was two people in it. The finale. No. Uh, I'm not going to give spoilers away, but uh, oh, spoil oh, sorry, no, sorry, sorry. Okay. But, but is it a fine? Is it a conversation between mm -hmm. Bedunia and Jonathan? Mm -hmm. Shall we say? Shall we say? Yeah, that was day one. And if that's the, if that's the case, then yeah. Christ, that's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that is a big that place is, to start. That's day one. That's, wow, that, that was that was that was the first one. And and for me, I was the most excited. I really wanted to set the tone, you know, for the for the for the rest of the movie, for the rest of the shoot. Um, you know, letting people know this is what the movie's about. You know, and and I was super excited about it. Like, I mean, I laid out my clothes. I knew what I was wearing. I was like, look, I went to sleep. I mean, I hardly slept that night, honestly. I, I just stood up really late, just nerves, anxiety, you know, just, yeah, just, yeah. just excitement about, you know, coming to set. So that was um that was something that was really exciting. Oh, my God. And so so in terms of prepping for this, I mean, did you go back and and look at the the previous eight movies to see the you know, to see the things that they got right to to maybe see if there's any potential pitfalls that you went want to avoid in prepping 
I, I, I watched the first two creeds. Yeah. Uh, that, that was really it. Um, and, and I, I, a slew of other movies, um, that I watched, um, to, to, uh, you know, for, for, you know, different relationship dramas, different, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, therapy things, uh, you know, father, daughter, you know, I, I watched a bunch yeah. of different, um, um, movies and, and genres that, uh, that I pulled from and inspired me to help tell my story. Um, but, but as far as from, you know, the, the, the nine film, the wider franchise. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I only, only the first two creeds. I, I, Cause I was really wanting to focus on Adonis. This is Adonis' yeah. story. You yeah. know, um, we, we've, we've told the other stories so many times before, um, you know, to really move forward in, a, in the creed family. Um, I want to make this one an origin story and a trilogy and a sequel all in one. And in order to do that, you had to go back to Adonis's past. And, and that's kind of what we did. And that's one of the things I loved about it because, you know, there, there are so, you know, there have been, uh, you know, two creeds and six other Rockies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to mine new material or a new seam of material for, for a franchise like this. You know, we've had the rags to riches to rags to riches again story. You can't really do that. The, the, the tagline for the movie is you can't outrun your past. And it's obviously a movie mm -hmm. that's in conversation with its own past in terms of the two creeds, but yep. also the previous six Rockies as well. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I was really, uh, really pleasantly surprised by was how little we missed Rocky. And it, I thought that was really, really interesting. And that must have been something you were, you were anxious to, to set out. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, and thank you. You know, I, I think that it was, it was a, it was a weight that I inherited, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's there's nothing you could do about that. The only thing I could, do was to tell the most truthful story I could about a character in and Donna's Creed's life and um and and anchor that in the the themes and the DNA of what you know Rocky was, you know, and that underdog feel. You know, how do I make Creed feel like an underdog again when he yeah. has everything, you know, yeah. the third movie, uh at the ninth <laughs> of a thing where everybody's looking like, oh like there's no way that this is gonna work, you know? Um yeah. and I know that was what I was up against. Uh, for me, I just had to um, hunker down and and what I knew was right and 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 execute, you know, um, at a high level, um, you know. But the reason why we, I think people love these stories and they're so fascinated and love Rocky so much is because it's an underdog nature, and I think we all have an underdog feeling to us inside of us as people. You know, the world's hard, life's hard. We go through obstacles. It's not easy. So when you see a heroic character on screen, screen have hardships yeah. and 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 overcome the struggles um, and and rise from the ashes into the to the mountaintop, we feel like oh shit, we can do that too. Yeah. And I think that underdog nature, that feeling, that thread is what makes these movies so strong and so poignant. And 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 that's kind of what we tried to do with uh, with with Creed Three. It really is, and and you know, and, and and it's a movie that's in conversation with the past in, in a very very different way. Than I think people might be expecting, mm -hmm. in that the past is is entirely manufactured for this movie. That you mm -hmm. you create this backstory for for Donnie and and for Dame, which is really compelling and really interesting and rich, and it has all these these different layers going on. When did you know that that was the way to go for this movie to delve back into Donnie's past in in that way? Pretty earlier on, yeah, it was pretty early. You know, there'd been there'd been talk of like a son of Clubber Lang or something like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you didn't go down that no, route. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's it's actually funny to hear like all the internet fan you know gossip rumors and buzz about you know what could it be and this this that and other and it's just like you got to be more thoughtful than that. You know, <laughs> like I, I, I think I think just try just trying to you know I guess my level of taste and you know and and, and you know 
the movies that I like and watch are just a little bit more sophisticated, you know, mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. And, and and wanting to add something to this that feels a bit um, smarter, you know, than than just the obvious dots that I could have connected. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think really getting to know who you are today, and I'm a firm believer of this myself, is like you got to know where you came from to know where you're going. And I think in the first movie, we see a little bit of that of him as 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 a as a young kid. But what happened to those transformative years? You know, as as a child, you know what I'm saying? Like like when you're a kid, your first relationships, friendships. You know who who protected you, who taught you how to fight. Who what are all those things? Like as it pertained to a a, a present day boxer. You know what I'm saying? Like what what are some of those things that I can layer in there? Um, and so what are some of the the challenges is it for, you know, a young black man, you know, who who is wildly successful um, and how super fantastic you have to be, you know, to make it. Yeah. And, and, and what does that do when you're the one that makes it and a lot of your other friends don't. This guy has got all the talent in the world. Didn't make it for whatever reason, you know. Sometimes yeah. the car the cards fall that way, yeah, yeah. you know. And 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 uh, and that doesn't make anybody a bad person fully, you know. That does not, you know, make you're not the sum of your 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 worst mistake. That doesn't define who you are, you know. So I feel like there's a lot of things in there that I wanted to say and show examples of and have conversations about without having conversations and seeing the the relationship between these two guys. They started out so tight, but then grew apart. You know, was something that I wanted to um to show. So that brings us to to Jonathan, who you know I, I've seen two Jonathan Majors movies this week. I've seen yeah. Quantum Mania as well. He's very very different than both. That boy is fantastic. <laughs> so happy for him. I'm 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 so just just he gives me so much pride and joy. And honestly, I'm so proud of him. He he he's so talented and and layered, and he just yeah. becomes whoever is on the page um, with a certain honesty um, and and vulnerable. You know, he's vulnerable and intense at the same time. And he has a deepness in his eyes that you can't, you know, um, you know, you know, duplicate. It's really, really awesome. How do you direct him? Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm guessing he's not a Kang variant in this. Just to, just to double check, this is not an MCU movie. This is not an MCU movie. No, no, this is not, this is not a Kang variant at all. Okay. This is not one of the timelines. I, I, th- I think, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think for him, for us, it was about shooting the same movie. Knowing the character, what are we trying to say? You know, who are these guys? Um, and, and and gaining his trust. You know, I think as actors, you want to trust your director. You got to trust the space to be vulnerable. And I wanted to create that environment for him. You know, um, so I think for, for us, we're just spending a shitload of time together, and 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 asking a ton of questions, and getting to the root of these these two brothers and and their relationship and the love and the pain that they have for each other. Um, and and, and um. And yeah, man, you just got to give him, I told him, I said, when you got a Ferrari, you got to, you got to, you got to let it, you got to drive a Ferrari. You got, you got, you got, you got to, you got to drive that car. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I told him, we're going to, we're going to ride. We're going to ride, you know? And, and, and he, and he, and he loved it, you know? He, and, and, um, I wanted to, I wanted to show people what that Ferrari could do. Was there a competitive nature between the two of you? Because, you know, this is a, this is a movie in which we expect a training montage and you deliver Thank you. a training montage. I'm and right. it's, it's kind of astonishing. Were you, were you in, <laughs> were you, were you like out trying to outdo each other physically uh, in that montage? Yeah, you know, I, the funny part is like, we're, when he's doing his montage, I'm directing. So it's like we're never training in the same space. Okay. You know, yeah. so, 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 but, but, but there is a competitive nature to us, um, but a really healthy one. 
you know, I think you need your running mate, you know, like you need, you need your, you need your, your, your sparring partner. You need, you need somebody that's like, you know, when you run, you, when you're running against yourself, you know, and you're running, you know, you, you know, your race, so you don't really know how fast you can really go until you look to the side and see somebody running just as fast as you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. somehow you tap into another gear and, yeah. you, and you, and you dig deeper than you ever have before. And that's kind of what I had in this. I had somebody that I could look right to the side of me and be like, all right, that's my partner. Let's go. And and we pushed each other, you know, um, and, and that type, I've never had it quite like that before. Yeah. So this is, this was something that took me to a new level. Um, and hopefully, you know, um, with this performance, you know, from, from majors and you know, I want to take them to another level also. Absolutely. I've got to ask uh, very, very quickly, I've got to let you yeah. go, but uh, about the future, uh, mm-hmm. about what's next for you. You've talked about a possible Creed 4. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that something that you would like to do? And uh, is it son of Clubber Lang? Is that where, <laughs> is that where we're going? <laughs> no, you, you, it's safe to say that there, in my mind, there is no, there is, there is no version of like, no, no. Um, I, 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 I want to, I think we invested in very interesting characters, you know, and I think characters that people want to see and they want to know more about. Um, some in this film, some that we haven't, you know, been introduced to yet. So for me, you know, in this day and age, there's so many different platforms where, you know, IP can live and exist. And I want to take advantage of all of them. You know, there's like, you know, graphic novels, there's, and there's animation, there's video games, there's television shows, there's spinoffs. There's so many different things that, you know, this Creedverse I want to, I want to build out. Um, you know, me coming from the school of, you know, Marvel and, you know, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. coming out of that and existing as a kid, you know, I've, I have the vantage point of seeing all of the potential that Creed can be, and I have the ambition and the mindset for it. So I want I want to grow things up. That's very very exciting. Can I suggest an acronym for it? What's up? The Michael Creed Universe, the or Mar- MCU for short. <laughs> I think I think the acronym might get me in some trouble somewhere <laughs> somewhere down the line, but I like the spirit of that. That's great. Oh, we, we can talk it out. We can talk it out. Oh, man. Michael B. Jordan, absolute pleasure. Thank Appreciate you, it, bro. Same here, man. Thank you. This is great. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by, well, hopefully Chris for a start. I think he's going to be back next week. We are also going to be joined... Rachel Zegler. ...by Rachel Zegler, who's going to be uh, not talking about West Side Story this time, but talking... uh, Hey! In this house, we respect and love Uncle Steve. Yes, we do. No, I mean, Steve. Yes, Uncle Steve. 100% Uncle and Steve. And also West Side Story. Get out. Mm, no, draw the line. <laughs> anyway. No, get out um, of Jordan Peele. Leave oh. apostate. <laughs> anyway, we will be talking to her this time about Shazam, Fury of the Gods, for she is one of the furious gods or something. Yeah, anyway. Rachel Zegler, my bestie. Okay. Last time, bestie. Saw, I mean, okay, last time right. we saw each other, I was interviewing her on right, stage. All right, calm down. We'll, we'll, okay, we'll get okay, on very well. Sure, sure. <laughs> I believe. Within, not within 100 yards, I'm on. Remember what was discussed. <laughs> On that note, it is goodbye from Amon's restraining order. Goodbye from Amon. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> goodbye from Chris. Chris, yeah, but, no. I mean, on. look, let's be honest. We're basically interchangeable. Oh, but not really. You know, you're, I, you're here for one thing. I, so. <laughs> that hey, is true. I'm kidding. Uh, but I'm not now because I'm leaving. Yes. Because we have to record the Pilot TV podcast, hey, which but, comes next week with uh, Neil Cross, who I talked to about a film. A film. I'm crossing the streams. How dare you? Luther cross, the Fallen. I, I'll Neil see. Crossing yeah, Neil the crossing the streams. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, we have him on to talk about Luther the Fallen Sun, which is in cinemas at the moment and comes to Netflix on March the 10th. Okay, uh, so it's goodbye from you then. That was goodbye. It is, bye. Yeah, it was just like self-promotion, but it, it Always. sounded like self-promotion, Always. but it was actually goodbye. And it's also goodbye from me. I'm off to catch up on all the films I've missed. And also Mando. Oh my God. Boom, boom. Can't wait. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.